Uh, Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Again, that's the book of Hebrews chapter 4. For the past several weeks, we've been exploring James 4, 1 to 10. And in this passage, James has been addressing the issue of spiritual adultery. If you've been with us, then you already know why James addresses this issue. Uh, The churches he writes to, of course, are experiencing a series of trials, and as they're trying to understand the reason for these trials and, and what to do about it, some are apparently beginning to question whether or not God is perhaps sending these trials because He's wanting them to sin. Conflicts are arising in the church out of these trials over the issue of money, uh, financial security. So as these believers are trying to understand the purpose of their trials, at least some of them are starting to suppose that perhaps this is the intended result. God is bringing the trials because for some reason or another, He wants them to sin against one another. Over the course of several chapters, James explains why this can't be so, why God can't want them to sin, and how the root of their sin ultimately lies in their failure to remember and apply the gospel. And then as he comes to chapter 4, he finally gets down to the heart of the issue where he explains the real reason for these trials, and in this case he explains it is their idolatry. fact is, their conflicts demonstrate that there's something that they love more than God. And it's actually because God is jealous both for them and for His glory that He's not going to permit these conflicts to go unanswered, and that's the reason for the trials. God is a jealous God. He demands the affection of His bride. These are blood-bought Christians, and so He will not tolerate their unfaithfulness. And so He afflicts them with suffering as a means of highlighting their sin and bringing them to repentance. In other words, they're getting it completely backwards. They think that God is making them suffer so that they'll sin, when it's really just the other way around. He's correcting them for their sin through their suffering. He's disciplining them for their holiness. As I've been reflecting on this passage over the past several weeks, and all that it has to say about the consequences of our idolatry, It's made me wonder, what are the idols that we may tend to wrestle with in the church today? Their idol, once again, was money. That's been the source of their conflicts. But what about our idols? What might be the things that we hold on to which might arouse God's jealousy for us? And as I've wrestled over that issue, I think there are many idols that the church at large may wrestle with today. But of all these idols, I think the one that might afflict us the most is that of rest. We love, we idolize being at ease. You see this fact represented all around us in the culture. Uh, For example, according to a report by the Bureau of of Labor Statistics, Americans spend about 5.5% to 6% of their budget on entertainment. And that may not seem like much, but for perspective, that's over 50% more than what they give and almost 300% more than what they spend on education. It's essentially equal, actually, to what the average American spends on health care. According to one 2017 report by Deutsche Bank Research, middle, American, uh, middle income Americans generally spend around 50% of their money on luxury items. 
Americans as a whole average a little over five and a half hours of day on leisure activities and about three and a half hours a day working. Uh, that's more than they spend on household activities, eating, shopping, and education combined. We spend a little over nine and a half hours a day, that's about 40% of our lives, sleeping. And according to a 2017 article in the New York Post, American workers on average waste about an hour a day on their cell phones. You combine this with, with the approximately 45 minutes a day that they spend attending to personal matters, and you have almost a full day per week wasted. Of course, these are aggregate numbers, meaning they don't necessarily represent the typical American. Some spend more time sleeping, for instance, and some will spend less. Working Americans will obviously spend more time working than non-working Americans, but I still think you get my point, right? We long for leisure. There are a few things we want more than rest. I don't think that should surprise us too much. After all, one of the very first things that the Bible promises mankind is rest. Genesis 3, of course, mankind rebels against God, and as a consequence of sin, God tells Adam that that pain and suffering will accompany his labor. Well, just before that, God also tells the serpent that man will eventually produce an offspring who will crush the serpent's head, and it would appear that man immediately understood that this implied the promise of rest. I think you see this bear itself out in Genesis 5 when Lamech names his son Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's name, incidentally, sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. So it's not as if it's wrong to yearn for rest. The Bible actually tells us that we should long for rest. The only problem, of course, is that just like any other good desire, it's possible for us to distort the desire and turn it into a need, an idol, a kind of God that we serve, rather than as a mere desire. And this is reflected every time we seek out the fulfillment of that desire over and above our obedience to God. And so just like James readers demonstrated their idolatry of money, when they prioritize financial security over their gospel obligations to one another, so also do we make the mistake of idolizing rest when we seek ease and comfort before fulfilling the obligations that have been set before us in Christ. Of course, in instructing his readers what to do with their unfaithfulness, James tells them to resist the devil and draw near to God. We've been studying that over the past several weeks. And in explaining that statement, I've said that that Satan actively works to keep man under the judgment of God by promoting the worship of idols. We should expect, therefore, that he's going to distort this very natural desire for rest into something unnatural in the world that he rules. And not only that, but we should also expect that he's going to be most especially concerned with promoting this idea within the church. After all, the church, as I've said over the past several weeks, is the pillar and buttress of the truth. It's Christ's means of evangelizing the world. That means that if he can get us consumed with the idea of ease, if he can so intoxicate us with the idea of rest, that he can get us to sit down, fold our hands, and just relax a little, then he can keep us from sharing the good news of the gospel. 
It's quite simple, ladies and gentlemen. One of the obligations of the gospel is to go and proclaim this good news of salvation to the world. The only problem, of course, is that Jesus has promised adversity when we do this. He's promised difficulty. The world will resist our efforts to influence them just as we do with the world. So Satan wants to sell us on the idea of rest so that he can oppose us with affliction and then we will not persevere. So that he can bully and intimidate us into silence. He wants us to to love the idea of resting now because when we rest, people go to hell. When we fold our hands, they quietly slip into eternal judgment. In other words, it's just like the situation in the epistle of James. There it was a, a disproportionate love of money that undermined the gospel. But a disproportionate love of rest can do the same thing. And this means that we need to make sure that we're thinking clearly about the matter of rest so as not to fall sway under the sort of wisdom that James calls unearthly, spiritual, demonic. And that's our goal this morning, to gain a biblical understanding of rest. And to do that, I want us to go outside of the epistle of James this week to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. I think this passage will not only actually prepare us for what we're about to encounter over the next several weeks in James, but I think even more importantly, it will provide some fresh insight into the way that we as Christians are supposed to think about the idea of rest. The passage is Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 13. Again, that's Hebrews 4, 1 to 13. Let's go ahead and begin by reading this passage together. The Scripture says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but... All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're in a church that's facing the prospect of severe persecution. I know that might be hard uh, to imagine in a nation founded upon the notion of religious liberty. I mean, really, the most that we ever have to deal with are maybe a few dirty looks and Uh, you know, the occasional bit of mockery, and we don't even 
really know what to do with that a lot of the times, right? We don't really know what it's like to suffer for our faith. But even still, think about how hard it is to endure when you do have to suffer, even that very slight amount of resistance to your faith. And then picture what it would be like if the pressure was suddenly about to rise dramatically. There are more and more Christians today who seem to be sensing that there may just be some storm clouds arising on the horizon of our nation, these types of storm clouds. Laws are being passed that would seem to inhibit Christians from practicing the free exercise of their religion in the marketplace. Standard Christian teachings are increasingly labeled as intolerant or sometimes even hate speech. It would seem as if the legal precedent is being established, which could lead to a more formal and real persecution of Christians. Now, I'm not saying that this is most definitely where things are going. I don't think we know. And I think it would still seem as if we have a lot of ground to cover to get there, if that is where we're heading. But suppose it does happen. Imagine a worst-case scenario. What do you think would give you the strength to persevere in your faith? And yes, I know the answer to that question ultimately is God, right? He is the one who strengthens our faith and causes us to stand. But I'm, I'm not meaning to look at this from the divine perspective. I mean to look at it from the human perspective. God is a God of means after all. So if persecution comes and God does cause us to persevere, then it won't come without our effort as we strive to hold on to the faith. So what do you think would sustain your faith in those dark times? Where would you find the resources to stand firm? If you can picture that sort of worst-case scenario, then you can get a decent idea of what the recipients of Hebrews are facing. The book of Hebrews is traditionally called the letter to the Hebrews, meaning it's widely acknowledged that, like the epistle of James, this letter is written to believing Jews. And the author drops several hints throughout that these Jews are staring down the barrel of some pretty intense oncoming persecution. Now, I say it's oncoming because in chapter 12, verse 4, he says, uh, quote, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So it doesn't appear that they're necessarily dying as martyrs just yet. And yet it would seem that some element of this persecution is already occurring. He says that uh, we know that because the author exhorts them in chapter 13, verse 3. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now, we know that these Christians are already familiar with the concept of suffering. The author says in chapter 10 that they've already experienced the same kind of suffering in former days. He even notes that once they had compassion on those who were in prison and and even joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. So again, these Christians are not unacquainted with the reality of suffering, and yet it would appear that they're once again facing the prospect of this suffering, and they're rather hesitant about enduring that kind of persecution again. And so when the author of Hebrews writes this letter, it would appear he does so in order to encourage these Christians to persevere in the faith. Over and over again, we find him coming back to this exhortation to hold fast to the faith or to endure. And he does this while warning these Christians of the consequences of what will happen if they don't hold fast. Perhaps the most famous of these exhortations occurs in Hebrews 10. When the author says in verses 23 to 29, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? So then there you have it, right? Stick together. He says, so that you might encourage one another to hold fast to the truth or drift away from the faith and face the wrath of God. Point is, the one who endures to the end will be saved, so they must persevere. This is more or less the basic exhortation of Hebrews. So how does the author encourage this kind of steadfastness? Well, the answer is basically threefold. I've already alluded to one method, and that's warnings about the dangers of falling away from the faith. Essentially, he uses the fear of the Lord to provoke steadfastness. Number two, which actually serves as the basis for this first method, the author provides a robust defense of the Christian faith. Again, you know how I've uh, recently said that Satan will use trials, to provoke first doubt and then disobedience and idolatry? Well, that's what's happening with these Christians. The persecutions they're facing, uh, some of which, by the way, are probably occurring at the hands of their own Jewish brethren, they're, they're causing these Christians to second guess and to reconsider whether or not they've made a mistake in following Christ. Is he really everything he claims to be? Because if he's not, this isn't worth it. The writer of Hebrews addresses these concerns by pointing back to the Old Testament and demonstrating how it predicted the Christ, how it even demonstrates that he would be a prophet greater than Moses and a priest greater than Levi and establish a covenant better than the one that was made at Sinai. That's all there to tell these Christians, Jesus is exactly who you thought he was. And so you must not now turn back from the faith and open yourself up once again to the wrath of God. You see this come out in the verses that actually precede the passage I read just a moment ago from Hebrews 10. There the author writes this. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure Watering, And then he continues, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So, number one, the author defends the Christian faith. And then number two, he uses this defense to warn his readers about the consequence of their unfaithfulness should they turn away. And then number three, he encourages. He encourages. And this is just good shepherding, by the way. You look throughout the Scripture, for instance, and you see that God will encourage repentance and faith both with the threats or warnings and with the promises of blessing that come with the gospel. God uses every means at His disposal to encourage faith. Here the writer of Hebrews does the same thing by encouraging his readers as the same, at the same time that he warns them. And so what does he encourage them with? What's the hope that he offers them? It's the promise of rest. If you've ever struggled to be faithful in the face of affliction, then you already know that there's perhaps no greater promise to offer in circumstances such as these than that of rest. 
It's like when you work out. Like I don't, I don't know about you, but I, generally speaking, I hate to run. I don't hate it as much as I used to, but I don't really enjoy it either, right? Still, Emily likes to run. And a while back, I made a commitment to run a 5K with her. And so to prepare for that, I finally made it a point to get into shape and to make myself run. Now, like I said, I still don't like to run, but as I've disciplined myself to do it anyways, I've learned that there's one way to make the experience of running less painful, and that was by telling myself, it'll soon be over, (laughs) right? Just 25 minutes, 25 minutes, that's that's about the length of a sitcom, you know? Like, I've watched plenty of sitcoms, and they're over before I know it, so I can do this. This will be over soon, you know? And when the time starts to wind down and my lungs are aching, right, and I look at the time and I see I still have five minutes to go, I tell myself, five minutes, okay, five minutes. I brew coffee in about four minutes, and that's done in no time, so this will be over soon. I just remind myself over and over again about the promise of rest. And you know what? No matter what I feel like, it's not very hard to keep going. So long as I remember, this pain will pass. It's not going to last forever. And this is the exact same tack that the author of Hebrews takes when encouraging his readers to endure. In fact, in chapter 12, after reminding his readers of all these Old Testament saints that endured by the promise and what they hoped for, he writes this, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't know if you're catching the visual there, but the idea he's presenting is that of a finish line at the end of a long endurance race. I don't know if you've ever attended or or run in one of those races, but because of the great distances that are involved in a long-distance race, the the runners will get spread out and will sometimes finish minutes or, in the case of a marathon, even hours before the other racers cross the finish line. And quite often what will happen is that the racers who finished first will kind of hang out around the finish line and even cheer on the other racers as they draw near. That's the picture that the author of Hebrews presents. These Christians are nearing the finish line, and they're gassed, and they don't know if they're going to make it to the end. And then there's Moses standing there on the sidelines cheering them on. He's finished his course, and through his writings, he's telling them, don't quit. You're almost there. The finish line is is just around the corner. And then they go a little bit further, and there's Abraham holding his medal, and he's saying, God is faithful. He fulfills his promises. Don't stop now. You're so close. And then as they round the corner, as their knees begin to buckle, there's Jesus standing there at the finish line, trophy in hand. He's won the race, and He's beckoning them, telling them just a little bit further, come on, don't stop now, enter into my rest. It's just really a beautiful illustration. Here's this this great cloud, this, this crowd actually of Old Testament saints cluttered around the finish line, and they're all crying out, come on, you can do it, don't stop now, it's almost over, you just have to go a little further. They're all encouraging these Christians with the promise of this approaching rest. That's one of the approaches that the author of Hebrews takes to encourage these Christians to endure. And that's the approach that we find him taking in today's passage as well. 
right here, chapter 4, verse 1, we actually find both the warning and the promise. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, there's the promise, right? Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. There's the warning. This exhortation comes in the middle of a section which the author both begins in chapter 3, verse 6, and ends in chapter 4, verse 14, by exhorting his readers to, quote, hold fast our confession. He's telling them to persevere both with the promise of rest and with the warning of what will happen if they don't hold fast. He's saying they will not enter this rest. As he illustrates and explains this warning, he takes us back into the Old Testament, the the therefore in verse 1, it draws us back to the end of chapter 3. And there he says, starting in verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left uh, Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So once again we have this promise. He says, verse 14, we have come to share in Christ, but then he conditions this promise by saying, if, we, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Again, he's encouraging them to persevere. He's encouraging them to endure. And how is he doing this? He does it by warning them that it isn't the one who merely starts the race that gets to rest with Christ at the finish line, but the one who finishes it. And where does he go to prove this point? He goes to the same place that he always goes in this epistle, the same place that any sane teacher would go when attempting to argue the merits of Christ to a bunch of undecided or irresolute Jews, and that's the Old Testament. Here in particular, he goes to the time of the Exodus, and he reminds his readers that it wasn't those who merely came out of Egypt with Moses that entered the Promised Land, but only those who believed. I mean, you know, that, you know that story, right? How, how Israel originally sent spies into Canaan. And those, those spies gave a bad report telling the people that the land was good, but there was no way they were ever going to destroy the Canaanites. You'll, you'll recall, I'm sure, how the people then rebelled and how God then told Moses, no one from this generation, save for the two spies who did believe, would be allowed to enter. And I'm sure you remember how eventually not even Moses himself was allowed to enter because of his, one, his unbelief in one instance. Well, that's the evidence that the writer provides to prove, prove his point here. Once again, verses 16 to 19, he says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And this leads us back to verse 1, right? Where he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear that any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So now this raises the question. 
What's the sort of rest that he's talking about here? When is this rest going to take place? In 1 Peter 5, Peter seems to promise deliverance from the trial itself. When he says in verses 9 to 10, referring to the devil again, he says, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I've explained that this seems to be the same thing that James is promising in James 4 when he tells his readers, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The idea, once again, is that God is disciplining his people for their unfaithfulness and the implication is if they simply repent and return, then he'll have no further need to correct their unfaithfulness. The trial would end and they would have rest from their affliction. Is is that what the author of Hebrews is saying here as well? When he exhorts them his readers, right, to enter their rest? And quite simply, it would seem that the answer is no. No, he actually seems to have a very different kind of rest in mind. We see the hints of this rest scattered throughout the book. And in the passage I read a moment ago, uh, Jesus himself endures, quote, for the joy that was set before him and is now, quote, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Just before that, in Hebrews 11, Abraham believes, and the author is quite specific in pointing out that it wasn't merely the promise of Canaan that Abraham was hoping in. Writing in verses 9 to 10, he says, this is Hebrews 11, 9 to 10, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And after speaking first of the faith of Enoch and Noah and then Abraham and Sarah and of all the descendants that followed therefore, uh, thereafter, he says, verses 13 to 16, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Finally, in chapter 13, the writer closes the book. The author exhorts his readers with this same hope, saying, verses 12 to 14, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What is this this city? that is yet to come, this heavenly city with foundations that have been designed and built by God. The author describes the answer in chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. Chapter 12, he says, But you've come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And just to be clear here, I don't believe our author is merely being symbolic here. I don't believe that he's referring to a merely figurative Jerusalem that represents our salvation like what Paul does when he speaks allegorically of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion in Galatians 4. 
Now, I'm fairly certain he's referring to the new Jerusalem that John describes descending from heaven in Revelations 21 and 22. Speaking of this city, John says this in Revelation 21, 3 to 5. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. In chapter 22, he continues, writing in verses 2 to 5, Through the middle of of the street of this city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now guys, you see what's going on here in this city? God is living with man again. There's no more crying, no more pain. Nothing accursed will be allowed to enter into the city. The tree of life is there. Yeah, I mean, do you know what this is, guys? This is, this is the end of the curse. This is the stuff that Lamech was looking for when he named his boy Noah. This is rest. I'm pretty sure that although Revelation was written after the epistle of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews was yet aware of this coming city. And I say that because as we come to our passage for this morning, he's pretty intent on pointing out that there's a sense... And while there is a sense in which they've already entered into this rest when we came to Christ, there's also yet another sense in which we still have to enter into it. In fact, if you follow here, it's not even just that we as individuals have yet to enter into it, but that all of Israel, as in corporate national Israel, has yet to enter into it as well. Remember, this epistle is addressed to the Hebrews, to Jewish Christians. And he says, starting verse 2, he says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now, I don't know if you're following the logic there, but basically what he's saying is that Israel has clearly not entered the rest of God. Reason being, God rested on the seventh day, meaning there's a sense in which he completely stopped working then, since that is when he ceased in his act of creation. The writer's point here is that Israel did did not enter that kind of cessation from work during the Exodus, nor in fact have they ever. He says to Israel in the days of Moses, the quote actually comes from Psalm 95, but he speaks to Israel in the days of Moses, Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Now, do you see that God is speaking to the people, trying to enter into Canaan, and he's saying that they will not enter that kind of rest, this seventh-day Sabbath sort of rest. The writer continues. He says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's also from Psalm 95. And the idea is that it actually still remains. 
for some generation of Israel to enter into this rest, since David, so many years after the fact, is still imploring the people, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The implication is that the offer still stands, it's still open, and can be accepted at any time. The writer then explains what he means here by this open offer in verses 8 to 10, saying, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, do you see this? He's speaking of Joshua here giving, quote, them rest, meaning he still seems referring to the people of Israel as they're coming out of Egypt, only now he's referring to that second generation. And the author is saying that this promised rest can't just simply refer to Canaan since Joshua managed to bring the people into the land of Canaan. And so for David to invite Israel and tell them today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like this other generation did, which did not enter his rest. And again, if he says this so many years after Joshua, then it must mean that Israel still has not entered into it. They still must exercise the kind of obedience that will allow them to enter into that rest. And that's exactly what this writer says. He says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. Again, God's rest, for God to say my rest, implies a rest like God's. So for anyone to enter, quote, his rest, they must also rest from their labors in the same way that God has from his. Clearly, no one has done that yet. Not even the second generation under Joshua. We're all still under the curse. And so, quote, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In other words, the fulfillment of the promise is still future. It hasn't arrived yet. God has long promised to Israel to let them enter into his rest, but no generation yet has. The covenants are not yet fulfilled, and this means that they are yet to be fulfilled in the future. So then how does the author exhort his readers in light of this unfulfilled promise of rest? Chapter 4, once again, verses 11 to 13, he says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give account. In short, he tells these Jews, persevere, endure. Don't look back. Don't be like these former generations that had the promise of rest and yet failed to enter it because of their unbelief. No, remain steadfast and endure until the end. Now, there are a number of things that I find fascinating about this passage, more than I think we could ever hope to get into here this morning. But what struck me about it so recently is how the author frames this idea of rest. You see, as these people suffer, he doesn't take the same approach as Peter or James. He doesn't tell them, look, just suffer a little while longer. And God will deliver you from this persecution. Instead, he extends this idea of rest far out into the future, even perhaps as far as the eternal state when the new Jerusalem will descend from heaven. And he basically tells them, just endure a little bit longer, guys. And at the very least, 
You will have rest when you die. I wonder, do you look at death in this way? As a kind of rest? Once again, I've said over the past several weeks that Satan will use doubt to provoke idolatry. And along with it, the wrath of God. Well, interestingly enough, it says in Hebrews 2 that Satan uses the fear of death to keep men in bondage to lifelong slavery. Now, as I pointed out last week, the fear of death isn't necessarily bad in and of itself. There's wisdom to be found in fearing the judgment of God. But all the same, Satan distorts and perverts our fear of death to get us to run from God rather than to God. So, you know how I said last week that we sometimes attempt to cover up our fears by going into the house of mirth, right? This is the, the last part of that, the, the, that section in James 4, 1 to 10, where he tells us to mourn and weep. And I talked about the idea that we sometimes cover up our fears by going into the house of mirth. Well, I think one of the very interesting ways that you see this fear of death manifest itself is this philosophy which the world promotes that says we've only got one life to live. So we better enjoy this one while we've got the chance. You know, you've heard the phrase YOLO, right? You only live once. That's practically the battle cry of today's society. Life is short, so play hard, right? The idea is that we don't have a lot of time before we die, so we better get our rest, our recreation in now while we still have the chance. Sometimes you even see Christians buying into this idea. In fact, guys, I'll admit, I'm 36 years old, and there probably isn't a single day that goes by that I don't think about how fast life is going and how little time I have left. And as I reflect on that, one of the thoughts that I often struggle with is how much of this life I haven't enjoyed. And sometimes it makes me wonder, am I spending my time right? Do I really want to spend this life trying to serve other people by advancing the gospel instead of just enjoying myself? Friends, I have to tell you, that kind of thinking is what James would call earthly, unspiritual, demonic. We're so often told, death is coming. You've only got a little bit of time, so enjoy this life while you've got it, as if the time for enjoying our lives ends when we die. But while that may be true for the unbeliever, right, it's most definitely not true for the believer. Death is a threat for those who don't know God. For them, the suffering of eternal judgment awaits. So yeah, they better rest now, because once they die, they will have no rest. But for those who have been purchased by Christ, death isn't a threat. It isn't a punishment to be feared, but actually a kind of unspeakable mercy. The stark reality of this fact struck me rather hard recently. You know how as we've been moving through James, I've, I've shared with you my own struggles with the fear of death. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was wrestling with this passage, and uh, not this particular passage, but a passage I was working on. I was wrestling with this passage, and mentally I was tired. Like I know some, ki- some guys can just step into the pulpit, and they can let it rip, and the sermon sounds good, but that's not me. I have to work really hard to prepare these messages. And honestly, I get tired a lot of the time. 
I mean, I don't, don't get me wrong, I like what I do, I enjoy my work, but all the same, counseling, teaching, preaching, it's mentally and emotionally exhausting. Anyways, I'm wrestling over this message, and as my brain is sputtering out, I'm thinking to myself, I'm so tired. When is this cycle ever going to end? And then this passage popped into my head, and I remembered, oh, that's right. I'm going to have rest when I die. And in that moment, it helped me see once again how illogical my fears of death are as a Christian. It helped me remember once again that for the Christian, death truly is a kind of mercy. It's a release. Like, I know what Paul says in Philippians when he's sitting there in jail talking about how he's hard-pressed between the prospects of dying on the one hand and his desire to stay and serve the church on the other. On the one hand, right, he loves the church and he wants to serve her, but on the other hand, he is so enticed by the promise of rest and seeing his master. When I think of this idea of rest in this light, I know what he means. I can feel that too. Friends, I know this probably sounds elementary, right? All as Christians, we should all know this, but truly, truly, death isn't something for you and I to fear. It's something for us to look forward to, to even anticipate. And the reason is because death means an end to our labor. It isn't an end to, it's an end to our suffering and the beginning of our recreation. It's the beginning of our rest. You see, guys, the the truth has been flipped upside down. It's been flipped upside down in part so that we as a church will take our rest now and allow the eyes of the unbelieving to remain closed. For us, of all people, this saying should not be, life is short, so play hard. It should be, life is short, so work hard. Life is short, and so now, now most especially of all times, is it the time to labor? That is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Understand this, guys, this is the cursed planet. This is the time of toil and sweat and labor. The new Jerusalem, where those things will be banished, is still future. There yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So this isn't the time to rest. This is the time to work, to strain, to expend ourselves with such labor for the kingdom that we eagerly anticipate our coming death. There's so much that I want to say right now, but I'm starting to run out of time. So let me go ahead and just wrap this up by asking you three questions here today. Here are three questions that I want you to ponder as we reflect upon the idea of rest that we find here in Hebrews 4. First, number one, when do you plan on resting? Where is the anticipation of your rest? Are you currently at rest? Are you seeking recreation now? If so, why? Don't you realize that this is not the time for rest? Don't you realize that that our Sabbath is future, that we will have rest when we die? Why are you not expending every effort you can to advance the kingdom, and most especially now, most especially because the time is short? Perhaps you're not at rest. Perhaps you are laboring and you're tired. If so, do you realize that you only have to labor a little while longer? Do you realize that the time is short, 
and take comfort in the fact that soon you will rest. And, and if, you, if that's not you, if you're not taking comfort in that, then be encouraged. Take heart. Hear the cries of this great cloud of witnesses who also once had to see by faith from afar, but are now already at rest. And keep enduring with that hope. Whether you presently are at rest or whether you're presently worn down with labor, the answer is the same. Renew your mind with the hope of this promised rest. Don't listen to the lies and schemes of this world. Don't believe that now is the time for you to fold your hands and take it easy. The thought that now is the time to rest is nothing more than a lie perpetuated by the devil himself to keep men in bondage to their sin. Now isn't the time to rest. Now is the time to work. And to do so buoyed by the hope of the rest we will receive in heaven. It's like Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart will follow where your treasure is. So set your treasure in heaven and be motivated by this hope. This leads us to our second question, question number two. Do you labor hard enough in this life to anticipate this coming rest? Do you labor hard enough in this life to anticipate this coming rest? And just to be clear, when I ask this question, I trust you all understand that by the term labor here, I'm not referring to any kind of effort to earn your salvation with your attempts at obedience or righteousness or anything like that, because that's not how salvation works, right? The only way that anyone is able to enter into heaven is through the righteousness of Christ. It's through His works, His perfect obedience that we're considered righteous, and we receive this perfect righteousness simply by faith when we believe. And in that sense, the Christian has already rested from their labor. They no longer strive for the righteousness that's required to stand in the presence of God. In the words of Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when I ask, do you labor hard enough in this life to anticipate the rest of death? I'm not asking if you're laboring for salvation. I'm not asking if you're working at your obedience so that God will deem you worthy to enter into His presence. The Christian is already at rest in Christ in that sense. Rather, my point is that although salvation is a gift that's received entirely by faith, at the same time, that faith is often quite hard to live by. It's just like with these Hebrews. They're struggling to hang on to the faith because living it out is resulting in this this intense suffering. There's There's an element to that in the Christian life. Whether it be the struggle we face as we fight against our own sinful flesh or as we fight against our doubts or even if it means we suffer some type of actual persecution for our faith like these Christians did, the fact remains that attempting to live out this faith will inevitably result in a kind of exertion that feels like labor. And it's that kind of labor that I'm talking about here. Not the labor that comes from trying to earn salvation, but the labor that comes as a result of it as you try to actually live according to your faith. Do you labor hard enough that you can anticipate your coming rest? I would imagine that for some of you, passages like this one may fall flat. I mean, you don't understand what the big deal about heaven is. You, You know you're supposed to look forward to it, but you're not really sure why. Why is that such a big deal? 
might I propose that part of the reason that you struggle to understand that might be due to the fact that you're already at rest? Might it be due to the fact that you're not presently laboring hard enough to anticipate the promises of God? It's like James has told us, draw near to God, right? And, and God will draw near to you. There's a sense in which our doubts are dispelled, not only as we purify our hearts, but also as we cleanse our hands. We live by faith, and by that faith, our minds are eventually transformed to see the beauty of the gospel and the glories of Christ. It's like I just told you, for, for me personally, my anticipation of heaven is born in part out of my yearning for rest. And when I look to Paul's epistles, I find I'm in good company. That was the outcome of his labor as well. So if you're struggling with that kind of gospel hope, consider that this might be the reason why. It's because you've been put to sleep. You're already at rest. And so you have very little to look forward to. Question number three. Question number three. Do you rest well now? Do you rest well now? I know it's probably weird. I just said that after I'm telling you labor, labor, labor to say, are you resting well now? But I would also point out that while there yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, God also commanded Israel to observe the Sabbath now. And it would appear that at least part of the reason is so that they might both proclaim and anticipate this coming rest. You see, if you're the type that is laboring for the kingdom and still can't anticipate your rest, then part of the reason might be that you don't do a very good job of experiencing some of the foretastes of this rest that God gives us now. Now, there are mornings when, when I'm out on the front porch in the Word, and I'm praying to the Lord, and as I'm there sipping my coffee, I'm listening to birds, I'm watching the sun come up, and, and just generally I'm enjoying the beauty of what He's made and I'm thanking him for it. And one of the things that, that I actually always hate about those moments is that they have to come to an end. I, I, there are so many days where I want to just stay. I don't want to walk away, and I can't stay there and keep enjoying it because I'm also on a schedule, and there's work to be done. In short, there's not time to keep sitting there enjoying and worshiping as I'd like. I tell you, as I reflect on those moments, they make me long for heaven when there will be time enough to fully enjoy the works and beauty of the Lord. In other words, rest sometimes fuels our labor. At least the right kind of rest will. It's not enough simply to work hard. The Christian must also enjoy the treasures that they presently enjoy in Christ so that they'll be motivated to work hard. Rest has this benefit. It is even necessary for our labor. And not only that, but it's a powerful witness to the world. You know, there are probably few obstacles to the gospel greater than that of the, the miserable Christian, and most especially the Christian who is miserable because of their Christianity. I mean, don't tell me you have life and then go around smelling like death, right? I want to I see that life in you. I want to smell it emanating off of you. And listen, friends, that, only ha that happens not only as we love other people, but as we do so joyfully as we do so joyfully. And where do you find that joy? Well, it comes in part through our anticipation of our rest, which occurs as we experience and enjoy the foretastes of our rest that God has given us. Friends, we are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. 
And this means that we are to live as much as possible according to the laws and customs of that kingdom. And that means that at least part of our mission is to demonstrate to the world the joys of our coming rest. So don't walk out of here today thinking I'm saying only work hard. I'm not saying that. Please do enjoy rest. I think it's necessary that you enjoy at least some measure of rest. Just don't be ruled by the desire. Don't become so intoxicated by the idea that you come to forget that now is the time to labor. So reflect upon those questions. See if this is where your hope is. And then let's close by praying that we will all run with endurance the course that is set before us. And so enter into our promised rest. Let's pray.